This morning we are going to talk about something very dear to my heart, and that is the whole concept of stepping out of your comfort zone, getting out and doing something that you think you need to do but that you feel afraid to do, and how does that happen? I read an article about how to begin a talk and there were several different ways uh, that were mentioned. But one of them was uh, to tell a story once upon a time. People get involved when you think about once upon a time. So once upon a time, there was a middle-aged woman who wanted to be a poet. She had a day job as a manager far from the halls of poetry and poets and she wrote at night or on the weekends when she had time. She submitted her work to every publication she could find in the Writer's Digest, lots of postage paid stamps, envelopes going out, and she got back a lot of rejections. The ones that hurt the most were the ones that came back with her postage paid envelope postmarked a couple of days after she sent them. <laughs> So they didn't even have a chance to sit in a slush pile for a couple of months. She got them back right away. However, she did have a few claims to fame. She won second place and a $50 check from the Pennsylvania Poetry Contest. <laughs> so overall, she had to admit she really didn't, hadn't made it as a poet. Well, I was that woman, and today my message is about a time when I had to step out of my comfort zone and do something that really was, I wasn't sure I could do. It was really scary. Now, there are two other characters in this story. One of them is Sybil Lennington, and you can see her little horse right here. Um, the other one, American Revolution, this is, this is 1777, we're talking about for Sybil. If you can imagine a 16-year-old girl in 1777. And the other person that is the character in this story is you, all of you. I want you to think for just a moment. Is there a thing that really challenges you and if there is, what is it? Is there something in your heart that you have been thinking that you really want to do? Is there something that you've been afraid to do? Is there something that you've been afraid to take the risk to do? Well, let me tell you about my story with Sybil, and perhaps you will be reminded of something that you might want might have wanted to try but didn't do. As I thought of this morning's talk, I found this, I was doing some research and I found this great quote, which you may see up here, it's a little bit far away, but our wonderful former First Lady Michelle Obama said, here's her quote, just try new things. Don't be afraid. Step out of your comfort zone and soar. All right, <laughs> I can just see her saying that. 
But Michelle, I said to myself, it's not, it's not so easy. We might want to take a trip, join a committee, make a new friend, write a book, but we're not sure of ourselves and we can be afraid. We wait and we say, okay, maybe I'll try that tomorrow. Maybe I'll try it next week. And we let the opportunity go by. We think maybe it's too big for us and we can't do it. So we step back and we lose the chance. My friend Bob Shavrian gave me this pouch. I carry it around with me. I've got a little notebook in there and a pen so that if I get inspiration, I take this out and I write it down real quick before I forget it, whatever it might be. And the pouch says, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. It is pretty hard to get there, as I mentioned. Because the question that I would ask of Michelle, who says, do it, is how do we get there? How do we get to the end of our comfort zone? How do we jump over that barrier of fear or whatever it is that's keeping us from acting? Right now, I want you to think of something that you've wanted to do, dreamed of doing, or been afraid to do. And my hope is that when after this morning, you will be moved to take that step as I did. So I'm going to take you back to 1992. 30 years ago, it's a long time ago, but here's what happened. My husband, Ernie, was teaching at Hoff Bartelson, which is a music school in Scarsdale. And he was, the, he was working with Ludmilla Ulela, who had been his professor at the Manhattan School of Music, who had written many chamber pieces for, uh, for chamber groups, and Ernie had performed in some of them. So they knew each other, and they were friends and colleagues. And she, they were in the coffee room one day, and she said to him, uh, do you know any local poets I've, uh, that might want to write a libretto? I've been commissioned to do an opera about Sybil Eddington, and I'm looking for somebody that I can work with. Well, of course, Ernie knew that I was struggling with this whole poetry issue, and I'd been writing poems, and I'd been getting rejections, and uh, he was almost jumped out of his seat, but he didn't. He very calmly said, you know, my wife writes poetry, and she's pretty good. Um, she might be interested in doing it. He didn't say she'd love to do it. He said she might be interested in doing it. So I heard this, and I just went around the house in the study through the files looking for all the poems because she wanted to read the poems first before she said yes, she wanted to see what I was writing. And I gave some poems to Ernie. He took them to Lidmilla, and she liked them. And she said, I'd like to meet your wife, and I'd like to work with her, maybe. Uh, well, I'd like to talk with her and see what her ideas are. So I was so excited. I was so excited, and I was so, oh, at last, my moment has come. But I was so afraid. Uh, I could feel my heart beating. And uh, 
I really didn't know much about civil lending, except that I was working in Carmel. And if you, any of you have been up there, there's a park overlooking Lake Glenida, and there's a very large statue with a very fierce horse and a, a, a girl, you know, uh, shaking a stick. And back in the day when I saw that, I think they fixed it since, she used to foam at the mouth. So some there was some chemical thing in this statue. And you'd see her foam. The first time I saw it, I thought kids had done it as a prank. But it wasn't really a prank. It was some chemical that made her foam, her mouth foam. <laughs> but that was all I knew about her. I just knew that she did something important. She was riding a horse, and it had something to do with Putnam history. Um, so I got myself to the Reed Library, which is in, in uh, Carmel. And it, they had some special files and rooms where they kept information about Civil Ludington, and I started doing research. And I found out that it was really all a family legend that Sybil Ludington, who was 16 years old and the daughter of Colonel Ludington, who had the militia in 1777, was, rode her horse through the dark, through a dark woods to 40 miles to alert the militia that they needed to come because Danbury, the British had attacked Danbury supplies and they were burning. I found so many just strange commentaries and one of the commentaries which had been written by uh, a fellow many years ago uh, had said, and she made the ride 40 miles through the night and somebody had the audacity to write, actually write on that piece of paper nonsense, exclamation mark. So I don't know who did that, but it made me wonder, well, could she really do it? Could a horse really ride through 40 miles of dark woods with no trails, I mean, no roads? They didn't have roads back then. Um, I thought to myself, okay, I am going to believe that she did this. I'm going to write this story because I want a female Heroin. I want to know that there was somebody who had the courage to do this, not just Paul Revere with his writing, but actually someone right here in our community. The supply, I started getting the facts. The supplies were being burned. That was true. Uh, Colonel Ludington was living there. That was true. Sybil, he had uh, all these children, and uh, Sybil was the oldest, 16. And actually, uh, they were pretty used to riding around in the, uh, in the dark trails and, and uh, the dangerous uh, areas there. Uh, but we needed something to make this into a drama. We needed something to perk it up. And what would that be? Well, I created this old blacksmith who was kind of touched in the head. And uh, when the Indian raids had taken place, he had stayed, the other people had left, but he stayed, and because the Indians, the Native Americans, felt that he was touched in the head, that there was something special about him, that the Great Spirit had touched him, but also that he was a blacksmith, so he made things that they needed. Anyhow, that character came from my home in Roundhead. Uh, that was someone who had been in the history of my community back in Ohio, and I just plunked him down and in New York, gave him that role. And also we needed a bass baritone. <laughs> so he, the old hermit was pretty good for that role. 
I also needed to give some some conflict with her romance. And at that time, she had she married later. She married when she was in her twenties. At that time, there was no information about any anybody that she was dating. Obviously, so I gave her this boyfriend who lived not too far away, whose father was a loyalist. So he was true to the king. His father was true to the king, and here he was falling in love with Sybil, who was a rebel. So that was a little bit. That was a little bit of conflict, and uh, it was fun to do that. So. The conflict was there. Oh, also we had another star in the show, and that, and that star was Star, her horse. She named her, she named her horse Star. Uh, he, he was in the show, and I believe, if I recall, the soprano just used a, a kind of a bridle thing to pretend that she was riding the horse, but he was there, even though he didn't do any singing. Uh, <laughs> I put all these notes together, and so I did two potential arias so that Ludmilla could see them. And actually, uh, they were performed at a small chamber um, group before the opera ever even got going. And it worked. It, it worked to set the stage for the drama. And then I met with Ludmilla several times o over this year. This was taking place in 1992. I met with her several times, and we talked about the action, what should happen. She had certain ideas about what she wanted to be in it. She wanted all the children to be named. There were 12 of them. <laughs> she wanted to put that into a song, which she did. Um, and, and it was fun. It was fun to work with her. She was very easygoing. She wasn't temperamental. She was um, just a kind, wonderful, gentle person. And she passed away about 10 years ago. But when I worked with her, it was just such a pleasure uh, to see her kind of bringing me out and saying, here, I think we need this piece here. I think we need that drama there. And when you do a libretto and work on something like this, you have to write the words so that she can then write the music around it. So even though she had the idea of what the music would be wanted to be, she needed my words to do to do the music. Things went smoothly. We got the first act done. Colonel Leddington and his family, uh, Sybil, as she was described. And uh, then we got to the second act. And here's where things got rough. Uh, what was I going to do in the second act? I, Ludmilla had her idea about what it should be, Sybil doing the ride, but something had to happen to her. Something had to take place in that ride that would make a drama. And I was just frozen. I was paralyzed. I, I remember one Saturday morning, I was sitting alone at the dining room table. I had all these notes spread out. I had this blank piece of paper in front of me. And I couldn't write anything. I, nothing was coming. It was all just... I, I was frozen. I was fearful. I thought, oh, I'm going to mess this up. And then Ludmilla's going to be sorry she ever got involved with me. And this is going to be a mess. I don't know how to do this. And I was just sitting there berating myself. And I looked up. And just at that moment, right outside my window, this gorgeous, beautiful, big 
red-tailed hawk came and landed on a branch. I still get goosebumps thinking about it. I turned around, I looked at that hawk, and it seemed to be looking at me. And this is a little strange, but there seemed to be this cosmic connection that was taking place in this hawk. This hawk was giving me power to fly. <laughs> and I, that, that broke it. I started writing, and I wrote the beginning of this Sybil's ride into the dark woods and what happened and how she got afraid. And the words flowed. The aria, I, I'd like to read the words and then I'd like to play the aria. It's a little bit difficult to hear it and it's, it's not a very good recording of it. But this is what the aria says. She's, she hears an owl calling. She's stopped, she's frozen, she's afraid to go on. She knows she has to, but she's afraid. And what she's, she begins singing, just like the owl, who, who, and whose eyes are glowing in the dark, who waits to catch me lurking in the trees, who whispers my name softly in the breeze. I barely hear you, some awful creature stalks the quiet mouse who trembles, hiding underneath the oak. I hear you there. I know you wait. The hawk is sleeping now, has settled on his claw-pierced branch. Don't mock me, branch. Don't bend to me. I fear what you may hide. I fear the strange sounds pounding in my ears, forbidding pines. You shiver in the dark. Your needles pierce my heart. Do you hide one within your sharp embrace who will do me harm? Folk of the wood, spirit of the trees, let me pass, please. My hair catches upon the thorns. My face is scratched. My fingers bleed. I fear to stay alone here in the dark. My heart with caution catches, clutches. Someone must break the spell or I can't leave. So I want to play just this piece for you, and I'm going to put the microphone down next to it, and we'll see if you can hear it. Soprano was beautiful who did this part.
So that is the moment, the moment of Sybil's decision, her fear. And just as she got the courage to get back on the horse and go, I got the courage to finish the opera, the libretto. Her paralysis was broken, and so was mine. I was able to finish Act Two and bring her back to the family with applause and appreciation. And Sybil was a, a Paul Revere, a female Paul Revere, and she made a courageous ride in April of 1777, and our opera gave her the recognition she deserved. So how do I apply Sybil's renewed courage to my own, to this ability to overcome writer's block and paralysis? It's to feel the fear and to do it anyway. And yes, we can face life's challenges, and it does help us to find out as much as we can to do the research, but we must take the next step we must find ourselves encouraged by others who have gone before, who can be role models. And when I think of the role models that are there for me now, which I bring out when I think of them, uh, there are so many. We can be inspired being part of the interconnected web, just as that hawk gave me the courage and I felt the top of my head coming off and light pouring in. We can be part of that web, and we can experience it. We know that each of us has a role to play, and we each have talents, and we each have gifts that the universe needs. And the universe wants us to be all we can be. I believe this is why we're here. It's really to share with each other, to take courage from each other, and encourage each other. And that's part of what we do here at the 4th UU when we're together. Let us ask ourselves continually, what challenges do we face in our lives? What do we want to do to address them? How do we get there? I'd like to close my talk this morning with a, an aria sung by the mezzo-soprano, whom I named Mrs. Tidd. She didn't exist, I just made her up as well. She's the neighbor who comes over to tell them, tell Colonel Luddington that the British are burning the supplies in Danbury. And she sings this song in act two to the others who are there waiting. They're so afraid that something's happened to Sybil and they're waiting for her to come back. She sings this song to give encouragement. And the aria represents to me what I think we find in our lives that give us courage and that can help us to take the steps we need. This uh, is something that I saw when I hiked up on Breakneck Ridge, uh, this old cedar that had just been blown by the wind, but it was still there, very old, very gnarled, but a beautiful image. And the aria is called The Cedar Carved by Wind. There's an old cedar up on Breakneck Ridge twisted and carved by powerful winds, curving its gnarled branches toward the sky, indestructible. Listen, listen. You can hear the wind blow across the rocks, 
holding the cedar in a wild embrace. The tree stands. Bold spirit shapes our lives. We struggle here. We stand against the wind. We fight for what is ours. Listen, listen. You can hear the wind holding the cedar in a wild embrace. The tree stands. <laughs>